inspirational to witness the March for Our Lives movement that students from Parkland instigated. I love that students, children, young adults led the way. First, it was the walkout. Then yesterday, people all across the country jumped on board. As I watched those images, it gave me hope. It reminded me of the best of other protests and demonstrations that I've either been in, organized, or witnessed. On November 30th, 1999, 40,000 protesters gathered in Seattle, Washington, in opposition to a meeting of the World Trade Organization, the WTO. For the most part, the protests were a response to trade policies that ignored inhuman labor practices, had no assessment of environmental impact, and gave corporations increasing power. Referred to as the Battle of Seattle, this demonstration turned violent when anarchists and looters took over one street and demonstrations blocking several intersections restricted police transportation. This is what a lot of people remember from that time. And although these protests are largely forgotten by the general public, they spawned some ideas and tactics that would become very popular later, including the mic check human microphone practice. Another interesting phenomenon from the WTO 1999 uh, protest in Seattle was that there was a blue-green alliance that they called. It was, it was called the Teamsters and the Turtles consisting of trade unions and environmentalists. I think there's a lot of potential with that. But a third concept that caught the world's attention in 1999 was the protest rally cry, this is what democracy looks like. Like the human microphone, this chant was later employed by the Occupy movement is now part of most protests here in the United States. Here, in today's gospel, we get the ancient Judean equivalent of this is what democracy looks like. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Make no mistake, this is a politically charged statement. The second statement brings that out. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor, David. It's not just a cute religious reference. People expected change. They expected relief from Roman occupation and tyranny. They had messianic expectations. Expectations that we saw in the fulfillment of scripture. In Zechariah 14, they say, the prophet wrote, on this day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Also in Zechariah 9, the Messiah comes to town, comes to Zion, meek and riding on a donkey. And then there's this bit from Maccabees. Simon Maccabeus, the triumphal military leader, entered Jerusalem with praise and palm branches. We get it, right? We see all 
these expectations. We see that this was something very important. And we know that it is important because right at the top of the passage, we get Mark's red flag, his favorite word, immediately. (laughs) We get it twice. For Mark, the Hemingway of the Gospel writers, this is a lot. Remember? Again, it's yoo-hoo. In Greek, euthus. That's the word. Immediately. Pay attention. This is something important. And Jesus seems to know all about it. He even helps orchestrate it. He gives the disciples detailed instructions. Go into the village ahead of you, and you will find there tied a colt that has never been written. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. Jesus knows. He knows what is coming, and he knows with surprising detail. With that knowledge, Jesus plays the part everyone expects the part of Messiah. Finally, that Markan secret, the messianic secret that he's maintained throughout the gospel is out. Jesus is the one, even though he plays with those expectations. The crowd is ecstatic. They are riveted. They are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. They grab whatever they can to show their excitement. They grab branches, they grab like palm trees, they grab their own clothes, their own clothes off their back and put them on the colt, on the donkey, and they put them on the ground. They cut branches and make a path for Jesus and they shout out loud together. Everyone together. In their minds, this is what belovedness looks like. Beloved, remember? All throughout Lent. This is what it looks like to be and feel loved. This is what it looks like to change the world. I love that hope. But in Mark, it is completely anticlimactic. Jesus comes in through this gigantic procession, goes into town, looks around at the temple, and goes home. Not what people thought was going to happen. Notice, Jesus goes back to the beloved. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. He goes back to those with whom he is closest. Because Jesus knows there's life after the protest, after Occupy, after the rally cry. As triumphant as Palm Sunday is, Jesus knows there's more to this story. He knows what belovedness looks like. Jesus knows it goes much deeper than this. As we discussed last week, Jesus knows that belovedness involves giving our whole self. You know how people say, you know, give it 110%. That drives me crazy. Uh, 
They say that when they mean, give it like 70 or 80%, right? <laughs> give it a lot. Jesus knows what it means to give 100%. It means the end of your life. That is 100%. But it also means the start of something new, as we will find out in the days to come. Love will do something new in you, and that something new in you spreads out into the world. So throughout Lent, we as a community have been exploring how our belovedness, beloved, hold on to those stickers, how belovedness and the fact that we are utterly and eternally loved by the source of all life and love, how that reality relates to the pursuit of justice in the world. In all Lent, we've had this quote by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King on our bulletins, on the back. Maybe you haven't seen it. Maybe you never turned them over, but you can turn them over now. And you can see it, along with our little Lenten logo. We've had this MLK quote that describes the relationship between power and justice. But we have not delved into the fullness of that quote. Dr. King said these words during the SCLC annual report on August 16th, 1967. The quote in its context is this. King says, One of the greatest problems of history is that the concepts of love and power are usually contrasted as polar opposites. Love is defined with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands in the way, stands against love. Palm Sunday was a display of power. It was a moment of hope and a call for political change. But Jesus, like the Reverend Dr. King, shows us how power is made perfect in weakness. Love, grace, Vulnerability, that power made perfect in weakness, ultimately turns our expectations on their heads and shows us a way through the impossible. Who's ready for a story? Are we tired? Story, story, story. Okay, I could have gone short. I'm going to go a little longer. Hold tight. This, is, this, one's, this one's going to rock the heartstrings a little bit. A few years ago, I heard the story of Hector Black um, through the podcast Radio Lab. Some of you listened to that. Hector was from New Jersey. He did his undergrad at Harvard and then went on to be a World War, fight in World War II. And then when he came back, he married a woman named Susie. And as he and Susie were settling into their lives in the mid-50s, they heard about the civil rights movement. They moved to Atlanta, to Dr. King's neighborhood, to be part of that movement, to understand what it was like from the inside. While living there, he and his wife met a six-year-old girl named Patricia. Patricia's mother had left her, 
abandoned her to the streets. So Hector and Susie adopted her. Patricia was an extraordinary girl. She made her own clothes. She made and sold bridal gowns all the way through high school and saved up money. Then she went to college, became a teacher, and moved back to teach public school in the neighborhood in which she grew up. Then in November 2000, someone broke into Patricia's house, strangled her, and sexually assaulted her dead body. A man named Ivan Simpson was caught and confessed, and when Hector heard, he said, kill the bastard. Understandably. During the trial, Hector could not stand to look at his daughter's killer, and at the end, Hector read a prepared statement. He talked about who Patricia was and their life together. And in conclusion, he said, I don't know if I forgive you, Ivan Simpson, but I don't hate you. I hate with all my soul what you did to my daughter. And then he turned around and looked at Ivan in the face and said, I wish for all of us that have been so wounded by this crime that we might find God's peace. And I wish that for you, Ivan Simpson. That night, Hector was haunted by what he saw in Ivan's eyes. He saw a tormented soul. And he just, Hector decided to write Ivan a letter. To his su surprise, Ivan responded. He said, I know you have forgiven me. I know God has forgiven me, but I cannot forgive myself. I don't know the level of love Miss Patricia had, but if there's anything like your example of it, it is great. God comfort you in all things. Feel free to ask me anything you like. I will try to answer it. For the next 10 years, they wrote letters back and forth. Hector learned about his daughter's killer. Ivan was adopted when he was two days old. His birth mother was schizophrenic. Occasionally, when his adoptive mother was at work, his birth mother watched him. She would beat him and say, I'm glad I got rid of you. When he was 11, Ivan's birth mother took him and his brother and his sister to a public swimming pool and tried to drown all three. The sister died as Ivan watched. Ivan fell into addiction and a life of crime. And about the murder he committed while high on crack, Ivan said, I was hoping they would kill me. I couldn't live with it. After decades of correspondence, Hector said, I still blame him. He made the choices and there's no doubt about that. But now I know him and understand what happened to my daughter. And that has brought me something like peace. This is what belovedness looks like. As Leonard Cohen wrote, love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken Hallelujah.
Amen.